Welcome everyone today. I also want to say a big hello to all those watching online along with all the men and women joining us in a correctional ministry. We love you guys. Come on Defiance and we welcome our church family today. It's awesome. Well, we are in our fourth and final week of our controversial Jesus series where we've been going on this journey of discovering what the Bible has to say about some sensitive and somewhat controversial Topics, And if you haven't had a chance to be here with us, one of the many reasons why we're doing this series is because the world has not been silent on these issues. Therefore, it would be foolish for the church to be silent on them. But as we've addressed them, as we've talked about them, we've really tried to address them with grace and truth, gentleness and respect. And so today, as we kind of close up shop on this series, I just want to invite you to, to make sure that your trade tables and and your seat backs are in their upright positions and that your seat belt is correctly fastened because here we go. The title of the message today is Jesus and the Sexual Revolution. Jesus and the Sexual Revolution. Now, if you don't know what the Sexual Revolution is, it was birthed in the 1960s and it's been called the single most successful, powerful ideological system that has, has been in American society these past 60 years. We'll dive more into that here in just a few moments, but I kind of want to just lay a foundation for today's message because whenever I, I talk about gender or sexuality or, or uh, marriage, anytime I preach on those topics, um, it, it can stir up an incredible amount of shame for some people, maybe because of lifestyles that we've lived or doors that we've opened or things that we've done or even had done to us. We can feel like we're the only ones in the room and that everybody is looking at us and it can be incredibly uh, uncomfortable. And so I want to start things off today by taking a look at something the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Now, whenever the Bible uses the, the English words sexual immorality, it comes from the Greek word pornea, which is also where we get our English word pornography from. And so whenever the Bible uses the phrase sexual immorality, it's forbidding any sexual uh, expression outside of God's design that's found in Genesis chapter 2, where God created one man and one woman in a lifetime covenant and commitment of marriage. This is the standard that God gives to us throughout the Bible. God says, this is how I want you to live. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he raises the standard. He raises the bar. He says, not only do I not want you to commit those acts physically, but I don't even want you to commit them in your heart. In fact, if you even lust after a man or a woman in your heart, it's just like committing adultery with that person. And so to kind of help us realize where we're all at, let me, let me just list everything that the Bible is forbidding when it says flee from sexual immorality. This is any sexual expression outside of Genesis chapter 2 with one man, one woman in the context of marriage for a lifetime. This includes things like pornography, pornography. 
Sexual intimacy and cohabitation before marriage, oral sex outside of marriage, same-sex sexual expression, polygamy, polyamory, masturbation, sexually expressing yourself intentionally uh, with, with sexual provocative dress. This would be like posting uh, very revealing pictures of yourself online for the purpose of attracting sexual attention. Adultery, we did everything but... Lust of the eyes uh, and emotional and emotional fantasizing. All of those things the Bible forbids. And I just want to welcome you to Experience Church today. We are so glad that you are here. Now, to help us kind of, uh, uh, now to help those who might feel just shame start to rise up or feel like they're the only ones in the room that has ever done these things. If you have, I need your participation. If you have ever one time in your life stepped outside of God's design for human sexuality, even if it's just in your thoughts, if you've ever done any of those things, would you raise your hand today? And your pastor is raising, come on, raise them up. Keep them up, keep them up. Now I want you to look around, look around, look around. I want you to know the people with their hands up, those are the sinners, and the people with their hands down, those are the liars. But here's the, here's the point of why I'm doing that. And the reason is because we're not just a bunch of good people today telling bad people that they need to be good. We're a bunch of forgiven people telling people about the only person who's ever been good, and his name is Jesus. That we're all in the same boat together. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and every single one of us it desperately needs the grace of God. Can I get an amen? And as we study God's word, there's a couple of things that the Bible tells us to do. One, it tells us to love people, but secondly, it tells us to destroy false ideology. And so we love people, but we destroy false ideology that goes against the truth of God's word. Now, there are going to be some moments throughout the message today where you might feel like what I'm saying is a little aggressive. And I just need you to know, I'm not attacking any one person. I'm trying to destroy the ideology that's enslaving and ruining people's lives. Now, not everyone is going to maybe like hearing this, but I just want to remind us that I'm a, I'm a pastor, not a politician. So I'm not trying to win votes. I'm trying to win souls today. And so my, my goal is to speak the truth in love in a straightforward way, even if it's a little uncomfortable. But as we read scripture, we see Jesus constantly making people uncomfortable because he loved them enough to tell them the truth. And so let's get into it today. Dr. R.C. Sproul points out that the most significant revolution that we've ever experienced in the United States was not the American Revolution. It was not the Industrial Revolution, but it was the sexual revolution. Let me say it like this. The sexual revolution is not just the most significant revolution in our history. It's becoming a predominant, predominant religion in our society. Now remember, whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. God birthed the Jesus revolution, right? The movie came out not too long ago. God birthed the Jesus revolution in the 1960s, and Satan counterfeits it with a sexual revolution around the exact same time. And these two things are, are opposite ideologies that function like religions, uh, in fact, the Bible talks about this in Romans chapter one. It says that once people uh, discard worshiping God, what they start to do is worship the next closest thing. And that is human bodies who have been created in the likeness and image of God. For example, our sexuality. 
And so these two things function as opposite religions. Let me just give us a, uh, some examples today. The sexual revolution says that it's all about self-expression. You need to express yourself. But Jesus was all about self-denial. Jesus said whoever would come after him must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. The sexual revolution says worship sex. Now, anytime we, we try to find our identity, our joy, our happiness, our worth, man, that's the thing we ascribe our worship to. And so the sexual revolution says worship sex, that sex will give you all those things. But Jesus tells us to worship God because God is the only one who can give us those things. The sexual revolution is all about pride, pride, pride. We have an entire month for it. But Jesus constantly said humility, humility, humility. The sexual revolution says you were born this way, but Jesus said we can be born again and made new. The sexual revolution says we're perfect just the way we are, but Christianity says we're all sinners in need of a savior that brings redemption. The sexual revolution says come out, which I want to point out today is the counterfeit version of Christian baptism. That when somebody comes out in the sexual revolution, they're saying, I'm coming out. This is my identity. This is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. Refer to me like this. I want the world to know. But that's what happens in baptism in Christianity. It's when we step forward in courage and we go public with our faith. We say, I'm identified with Jesus. I'm giving my life to Jesus. And I want the world to know. The sexual revolution is all about tolerance. And tolerance is the counterfeit of repentance. Tolerance says just be okay with how things are. Where repentance says, man, we need to change some things. Tolerance is only mentioned twice in the entire Bible and both times are not good. Tolerance is mentioned when God disciplines and rebukes Christians for tolerating sexual sin in their own lives and in their churches. Tolerance is the counterfeit version of repentance. Now, both movements have a rainbow as their logo, that the sign of the covenant that God made with Noah expressing God's great love and commitment to all of humanity while disciplining and calling us to repentance is the rainbow. And then the sexual revolution counterfeited and co-opted the rainbow as their logo. Think about this. In Christianity, we come to Christ, we get a new name, a new identity, and in the transgender ideology, it does the exact same thing. Let's give you a new identity, a new pronoun, and a new name. And so hopefully we're kind of recognizing this is forming and shaping almost like an alternate religion. And think about this, that the, the LGBTQIA is functioning like a religion with each different letter as a denomination in the religion. And if we start asking the question, why is this movement so passionate about sexual ideology towards children in public schools? Why is that? It's because every religion eventually gets into children's ministry. And so what I want to do today is I want to show us two primary tenets or principles of the sexual revolution, starting with number one, if you're taking notes, you can write it down, and that is your sexual desires are your core identity. The sexual revolution says this is how you should define your life. This is how you should define yourself. Your sexuality and your desires, man, that's who you really are. And then secondly, fulfillment is found in unrestricted sexual expression. Now, the question that, that I want to answer today is, what does Jesus and the Bible have to say about all of this? 
And so let's, let's kind of break these two down, starting with the first one, the, the, the sexual revolution tenant number one, that your, your sexual desires are your core identity. Let me just give us kind of a, an example of this. What the, the sexual revolution says is that if you experience same-sex attraction or if you've ever had a same-sex encounter, then what the sexual revolution says is that, that that's not just something you did and that's not something you just desired, but that's who you are. And you need to make the, that the baseline of all of your identity. So for instance, the sexual revolution would not say that you experience same-sex attraction. The sexual revolution, notice the language, the sexual revolution would say you're gay. This ideology takes the desire and makes it your core identity to build everything off of that core identity. This is extremely significant because our activity in life is always determined by our identity. Right? Who I believe that I am impacts what I do. Once someone can get us to accept an identity, they can control our, acti our activity because while we can, can control what we do, you can't expect me to control who I am. That's a fixed reality. And so once the, the, the sexual revolution can get us to believe that our sexual desires are our core identity, then we're locked into those things. There's nothing we can do about it. Now the problem with this thinking is that everyone, every single one of us experience thousands of desires that change over time throughout our lives. And every one of us is constantly deciding which desires we're going to express and which desires we're going to control. Because every one of us, we have some grid through which we filter the desires of our life and we decide, man, what impulses am I going to express and what impulses am I going to control? Here's the point of why I'm saying this. If we don't have a standard outside of human culture, like a supernatural standard, maybe like the Bible, then what we will do is we will always use culture as our grid and we'll become who the culture says that we should be. But what we need to understand, what we need, what we need is a standard outside of human culture, a supernatural standard like the Bible through which we can sift our impulses that we experience and according to the Bible's standard decide, man, which impulses should I control and then which impulses should I express? So we need to know that if we're not committed to the authority of the Bible, we will always be a slave to whatever sounds and feels right. Let me say that again for the people in the way, way back. We need to, to know if we're not committed to the truth of God's word, if we're not living according to God's standard written in the Bible, then we'll always be a slave to whatever sounds and feels right. And every single one of us have made that mistake. I followed my feelings. I fell into that trap and I drifted from the truth of God's word. And I don't know about you, I paid the penalty and price as a result. Now, what I want to do is look at what the Bible says because it's radically different from what the sexual revolution says about how we should think when it comes to our identities. Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. It's one of the scariest words in the Bible for me is, is being deceived because you don't know it. You don't realize you're heading down the wrong path. You don't realize you're heading towards destruction because you're deceived. You think you're going the right way only to find out you're not. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral nor idolaters 
nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pause there. What we're seeing in the church of Corinth was that there were some sexually broken people. There were thieves in this church. There were people who gossiped and slandered others in this church. But God loved those sexually immoral, broken, thieving, slanderous people so much that he poured out his spirit on them. And he said, man, leave those things behind that will never give you what you're looking for and experience the abundant life, the true life that I have for you. And then no Notice what Paul says next in the very next verse, verse 11. He says, and that is what some of you were. And that's what some of you were. Paul says that's what some of you were, but that's not who you are anymore. What you did doesn't define who you are. Your desires are not who you are. Here's who you are. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Man, that's good news, isn't it? And in this passage of scripture, Paul is telling us to anchor and build our identities on the truth of God's word and what Jesus did for us, not these other desires and actions. Church, we have to get this. The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. And the number one lie the enemy of our soul wants us to believe is what we do or how we feel. Man, that's who we are. Satan wants to take what we did or the desire that we had and tell us, man, that's who we are. But I want to speak this over us today that only Jesus gets to tell us who we are. You're not your past, no matter how bad it is. You're, no, you're not your sin, no matter how dark the sin or deep the transgression. You're not your addiction, no matter how many times you go back to that thing. Listen, you might struggle with alcoholism, but you're not an alcoholic. You were made in the image and likeness of the creator of the universe. You are not your sexual desires, no matter what the world is trying to tell you. You're not your affair. You're not your abortion. You're not your divorce. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross, is what defines you and nothing else. Amen? It's radically different from what the world says. The, the world says, define yourself by your sexual desires. But the word of God says, define yourself by your savior. That we would root our identities in Jesus and what he says. Now let's move on to the, the second um, sexual revolution tenet, number two, which builds off the first one, and that is personal happiness and human flourishing are found in unrestricted sexual expression. In other words, it's saying, it's saying, let's get rid of all these old and outdated and archaic rules around sex and, and sexuality. If we could just get rid of all these oppressive and repressive ideals, then everybody would finally be able to be free, happy, and be themselves. Now, for some of us, that might sound like, well, that, that doesn't sound too bad, but that might be because that's all we've ever heard. I mean, the, 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 the sound of the world's pretty loud right now. And so let's take a look at what the Bible says. Now, I've said this before, but I think it bears, it's worth repeating, and that is there's the word and then there's the world. There's what people say in the world, and then there's what God says in his word. And the decision that each and every one of us have to make is that, well, I let what God says in his word overrule what people say in the world, 
or will I allow what people say in the world to overrule what God says in his word? The word, because the word of God says something very different from what the sexual revolution ideologies say. Here's what God says in, his, in, in the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18, verse 18 through 20, back where we started. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. I just want to point out, this is the only sin in the entire Bible where God says, don't even try to fight, just run away from it. In fact, uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God and to take our stand against our spiritual enemy, to fight, to fight our spiritual enemy. And so if it's, if it's, if it's uh, the devil, fight. If it's sexual immorality, run. Uh, for example, if we were to walk out of our jobs late at night, and if there was Satan standing by our car, pitchfork and all, the Bible says, man, let's throw down. Let's go. Now, come on, fisticuffs, let's go. I'm going to give you the fivefold ministry, devil. Let's go. Let's go to work. But the Bible says if you walk out of work late at night and there is a girl in a mini skirt waiting for you, the Bible says run, run for us, get out of there. Don't even try to fight. You're no match for that situation. Are you with me, church? You're no match for that situation. Run, flee. Paul goes on to say all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. In other words, when, whenever we sin sexually, the world is designed in such a way that we damage our own souls and we actually hurt ourselves. Verse 19 says, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Now, this might be the most controversial thing that I say today, because in, in our world, people say, my body, my choice. But the Bible says, actually, no. N number one, you didn't create your body. Number two, you didn't redeem your body. And number three, you're not going to resurrect your body. Someone else is going to do that. God's going to do that. And so it's actually not your body. It's God's body. Yeah. That you were bought at a price. Therefore, because of all of that, Honor God with your bodies. Now, this, this is where the, the sexual revolution would have an objection. And, and some of us might say that expressing sexual desires, man, that's not what's bad. It's repressing sexual desires. That's what's bad. That's what's hurting people. And this is the spot where if you're a newer Christian or if you're just kind of kicking the tires to, to kind of check out what's this church thing is all about. This is the spot in the message where you might think that what the Bible and Christians teach is that sex is wrong. It's dirty and just avoid it until you get married. But then even then it's just going to be boring. And so I just want to really quick just do a quick theology of sexuality from the Bible that we need to understand that, man, there, the, the, a good, loving, heavenly father created and designed sex because he loves us. I mean, just think about this. God could have designed us to multiply any way that he wanted to. Like God could have been like, man, when you turn 18, your big toe pops off and then you just plant that in the ground. And three days later, a baby pops up. He could have done that, right? But instead, he creates a naked man and a naked woman. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. 
It's a big deal. I feel like someone needs to hear that today. We've been naked, but there's been shame. And God designed it in such a way that we could be naked and not ashamed. And then the very first command that God gives to Adam and Eve is for them to be fruitful and multiply. Can I get an amen? Amen. Favorite scripture in the entire Bible right there. This is Hebrew for bow chicka wow wow, just so you know. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible called the Song of Solomon that Jewish boys aren't allowed to read until they're 13 years old because the entire book is a celebration of marital sexuality. I mean, it's full of things like Solomon chapter, uh, Song of Solomon chapter seven, verse eight says, I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruits. Is any... Anybody else, fellas, anybody else picking up what the Bible is throwing down? If Michael Scott were here, he'd probably say that's what he said. The Bible also says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse, let's get back to the word, just, uh, we're getting off the rails. Verse 3 and verse 5 says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Thank you, Lord. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by agreement, to which my wife, Justina, is never going to get me to agree to any of that. (laughs) Come on, husbands, you know what I'm talking about. I'd like to make a deal. No deal. No deal. But this is the point in the message where a lot of guys are like, man, I love this church. This is my... This is my church. But here's what we need to understand. The Bible is not anti-sex. The Bible is pro-sex inside of boundaries that will result in blessing and not pain. The analogy is like a fire. And as long as the fire in the house is inside the boundaries of the fireplace, inside of those boundaries, man, it's warm and beautiful and keeps everybody in the house alive. But if it escapes those boundaries and gets into the living room, the same thing that was life-giving can now burn the house down and be life-taking. Now, I wish I could just kind of say, uh, you know, this is what the Bible says, and our response would be, man, well, if that's what the Bible says, I believe it, I'm all in. But I know not all of us, are, our faith is, is mature enough to say, man, it's word over world every single time. And so let me just give us some statistics that backs up what the Bible has been saying all along. The sexual revolution began in the 1960s, and sociologists report that happiness levels in America have been declining ever since 1960. By the way, right now, Gen Z is on record as the angriest, loneliest, most depressed generation ever on record. I mean, the progress is not progressing, church. And as happiness levels have gone down, something else has gone up, and that is divorce rates. Divorce rates have actually doubled since the 1960s. This has resulted in an epidemic of fatherlessness where somewhere between 25 and 50% of children in the United States are growing up without a father in the home. Now, I mean, this is a big deal because fatherlessness statistically is the number one contributor to all five of the following societal problems. Crime, homelessness, unwed pregnancy, poverty, and future fatherlessness. It breeds what it has, which, by the way, can I just speak to the the dads in, in the house today that your kids need you not just to provide, but to be present. 
that dads, we would fight for our kids, that we go after our kids. This is the first time in our nation's history that we have almost as many kids growing up without a father as we do with a father. Listen, church, if we want to change the world, then how about the men in this church stand up and act like men and start fighting for the hearts of our kids? And I'm right there with you. In fact, 80 to 90% of all teenagers will be exposed to pornography with the average age of first exposure being around the age of 11. A recent study of 16 to 18 year olds showed that nearly every person learned how to have sex by watching pornography. To understand how devastating that is, the young women in that report said they were pressured to play out scripts male partners had learned by watching pornography, badgered into uncomfortable, uncomfortable positions, consenting to unpleasant and painful acts. 25% of them uh, described being horrified or scared during sex because of the things they were pressured to do. One in three underage teenagers report having seen non-consensually shared nudes of other minors. And by the way, that's called child pornography. All research shows that there's a correlation between sex trafficking, violence towards women, rape culture, and pornography. I mean, this is a big deal, church. Today, sexual abuse is at its highest rate in our nation's history. One in four women, one in four women will be victims of sexual abuse by the age of 18. By the age of 18. When it comes to cohabitation, living together before marriage has become extremely normal in our world today. Non-Christian sociologists have found that cohabitation increases divorce rates by 50%. Some of us might say, well, we're just practicing for marriage. You're not practicing for marriage, you're practicing for divorce. When it comes to sexual partners, the data shows the more partners you have, the lower your sexual satisfaction is with the highest rate of satisfaction being among people who have one sexual partner for their entire life. One group does not seem to be struggling while everybody else is. In fact, the Wall Street Journal reports, uh, the title of this article was Too Risky to Wed in Your 20s, Not If You Avoid Cohabitating First. The Wall Street Journal reported that religious people who marry young without ever having lived together have the lowest likelihood of divorce in America, which we could, we could help the editor out and fix their headline by saying, experts discover what anyone who reads the Bible has known for 2,000 years. <laughs> now, all of those stats can be somewhat overwhelming and, and discouraging, but... All that was done in the name of progress, and we ended up with the angriest, loneliest, uh, least parented generation in our nation's history. And a lot of what the world calls progress, the Word of God calls decay, which means it doesn't need to be affirmed, it needs to be rejected, it needs to be resisted. Like what's happening right now in our world is, and probably for the past three years, is that our world is starting to wake up to the fact that the movement that pros, uh, promised liberation and personal sacrifice, uh, or personal satisfaction, excuse me, 60 years ago, is actually delivering misery and brokenness. I want to kind of just close today by, by kind of speaking to those who might find themselves in, in, a middle, in the middle of a sexual brokenness. Doors, maybe lifestyles that you've lived, doors that you've opened, things that you've done or maybe have done to you. Um, you might be thinking, man, I'm too far gone. Could God, 
God really love me where I'm at? Is there any way that God could redeem me? Is there any way that God could forgive me? Is there any way that God could heal me after some of the things that I have done? But I just want to speak this over us today. And that is that God, God loves you so much right where you're at, but he loves you enough not to let you stay there. In fact, as we read throughout scripture, one thing I love about Jesus is as you read about his life in the New Testament, not, not one time do you ever find Jesus scolding, rejecting, casting out or shaming anyone for their sexual sin. There's not one time he did it. In fact, I, I was just even reminded of John chapter four with Jesus and, and the woman at the well. The Bible actually tells us that Jesus went out of his way to go meet this woman at this well. He was on this journey and he actually travels a farther distance just to go to this one place to meet this woman at this well, which just gives us this picture that Jesus is willing to go out of his way to, to meet with people others are going out of their way to avoid. And Jesus meets this woman at this well and Jesus tells her, where's your husband? And the woman said, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Uh, you've had five husbands and now you have a live-in boyfriend. And then Jesus looks at her and says, you've been trying to drink from a well in sexual brokenness. And the more you drink, the thirstier you are. And then Jesus says to this woman, but, but, but I have living water for you. And if you come to me, I'll... I'll give it to you. And so the woman says, I want, I want that. I want some of that water. And in that moment, Jesus changes her life forever. And then the Bible tells us she ran back to her town and she said, come meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. In other words, her story of sexual brokenness and Jesus's love, grace and forgiveness was actually the thing that God used to bring about a glory that would otherwise not have been. Which reminds me of an ancient Japanese form of art called kintsugi. In fact, take a look at this kintsugi bowl. This is an art form where an artist will take broken pieces of pottery, melt down a precious metal like gold, and then fuse the pieces back together, infusing it with this precious metal. So that the broken pieces actually become more valuable than they ever would have been if it had never been broken in the first place. Can I just speak this over so that Jesus can do that in your life? In fact, you're surrounded by tons of people, including myself, who were sexually broken. And we came to Jesus and he restored us by his love and his grace. And then he started to put us back together again to give us a life more beautiful, more fulfilling than we ever had. And he can do that for you today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the truth of your word. And right now, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Holy Spirit, that you would comfort. Holy Spirit, that you would speak. In fact, our prayer today, God, is speak, Lord. We're listening. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're just in this place, and maybe it's shame, maybe it's regret, and you just find yourself in the middle of maybe 
this, this brokenness, this sexual brokenness. Maybe there's doors that you've opened, things that you've done or even had done to you. Done to you. you just need God's forgiveness, but more importantly, you need God's healing. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you, would you just lift your hand to heaven? I just need God to heal some things in my heart. Maybe you open a door to pornography and you keep going back to it and it's tainted your soul. It's dulled your heart. It's ruining your marriage. And you need God to, to bring freedom and healing into your heart. Come on, if that's you, you need God to heal some things. Come on, lift your hand. Father, you see our hands better, yet you see our hearts. You know the doors that we've opened. You know the things that we've done. And you know the wounds that we have as a result. And just like the woman in John chapter 4, we're here today. We want your living water. That you would heal. That you would redeem. That you would set free. So God, I pray for every hand raised in this place, every situation, every circumstance. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would breathe upon your sons and daughters today. That you would do what only you can do in our hearts and our lives, that we simply just say yes to you. I pray you bring healing, freedom, and life in Jesus' name. As we continue praying together today, maybe, maybe like the woman at the well, you need to say, here's my life. Here's all my sin. Here's all my brokenness. Here's all my stuff. I'm, I'm tired of drinking from wells that will never give me what I'm looking for. And I'm ready for the real thing. And I know it starts with a relationship with Jesus. If you would say, man, I don't have a relationship with God. I've known God in my head, but I've never known him in my heart. And today I know I need to surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you, would you lift your hand to heaven right where you're at? Say, God, I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. I'm tired of drinking from wells that will never satisfy and right where you're at, would you just pray this prayer and say, God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to pay the price for my sin on the cross. This morning, in this place, here's my life. God, forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit. Show me how to live. My life is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God some praise for all I did today. So good.